What do you get when you mix a brilliant garbanzo bean, a pitchfork-wielding spook, and a herd of one-armed gambling addicts? Yep, you guessed it. Tales of the Bean World. A most peculiar comic book experience. As an advertising executive in Chicago, Larry Martyr, a graduate of Hartford Art School, dreamt up this intriguing group of legume-esque characters and the unique reality they inhabit creating the bean world. Larry went on to become the first executive director and publisher of Image Comics and president of McFarland Toys. Not bad for a guy who started his comic book career photocopying his own books on an office copier after hours and then mailing them to fans himself. We'll talk about Larry's quirky creation, The Bean World, what Image Comics was like in the early days, the editorial process for creator-owned books, and much more, as Larry Martyr joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Today, we're talking with former executive director of Image Comics, and Tales of the Bean World creator, Larry Martyr. Uh, welcome, Larry. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Um, Glad to do it. Now, uh, you know, obviously we're going to start off with Tales of the Bean World, which is a comic that I, I, I found very early on and I actually, I, you know, enjoy thoroughly. It's, it's uh, very creative and imaginative, very different from anything that I had ever re- read uh, in the comic world, you know, growing up with the G.I. Joes and the X-Men's and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, you know, and it, the tagline is very appropriate, a, quote, a most peculiar comic book experience, which I think can't describe it any better. It uh, was one of the better ideas I ever had. <laughs> um, Coming from your marketing background, I think you, you nailed it, you know, right on the head. It did come from my marketing background, and I can still remember uh, sitting at my... Um, drawing table mm-hmm. in the bullpen at the ad agency that I worked at, and uh, I was sending out the type uh, to have the typeset for the co- the cover typesetting. That just shows how long ago this was. Right. And uh, at the very last minute, that slogan came to me, uh, and I remember writing it in by hand uh, on the galley and sending it back to have it set. And it, I, I mean, it couldn't possibly have been more last minute. Really? But I, I love it. Yeah, truly. Yeah. I mean, it was like inspired. It came out of, out of nowhere. And uh, because before that, I had things that were more uh, traditional. And uh, do you have any examples? Remember, you know, I don't. Some of the failed ones. One, except you know, something about being in your brain. Oh, it, I, it, you know, it was more Basil Wolverton ishy, um, <laughs> or Crumish, and uh, but then all of a sudden, this just this great, uh, clean, true uh, advertising uh, slogan came out of nowhere, and I've stuck with it. And uh, and really, in most of the early reviews that Bean would have got, uh, somebody would say, you know, this this book deserves truth in advertising because this is the most peculiar comic book <laughs> experience I've ever read. So, yeah. Right. Um, now, for those who may not have read Tales of the Bean World, uh, it's, it's sort of a, a magical, fictional world uh, that's, it's, it's, I want to say it's an alternate reality, but then it's not even reality. It's something completely unique where little bean-like characters, um, you, know, ex- you know, have this whole, it's a whole world, really. Um, 
where did you come up with the idea for Bean World, and and how did you first manage to get it published? Well, where did I come up with it? Sure. Um, that didn't hit me uh, in a bolt of inspiration. Bean World was something that grew over a very long period of time, uh, from the time I was about 20 to 30, uh, first starting out with, well, first of all, when I was born, my head was shaped like a lima bean. And so <laughs> oh, you the very first, progression from that? No, no, oh, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, the very first thing my mother said when she saw me was, why is his head shaped like a lima bean? <laughs> and I, in fact, have a thing that they, they used to have these things, I don't know if they still do, but, but a baby book, and, and it had a, it had a uh, entry in there, shape of head, I guess that was an important thing, and she drew this, which really, this line of being shaped, it looks like a Bean World action figure, <laughs> and, um, and so I heard that all my life, I mean, I can't begin to tell you how much I heard that, you know, the relatives are all like, eh, you know, he was born with a head shaped like a lima bean, and uh, so that uh, was something that I kind of always lived with. And then uh, in college, uh, in art school, uh, my junior, senior year, I decided to start really working with minimal shapes. And actually, I was inspired by Spider-Man of all characters, where I realized that uh, that Stan Lee and... Um, John, John Romita were telling these stories where um, Spider-Man, you know, face never changed. Uh, everything was, you know, this character had this wide range of emotions based on body language right. and, uh, and dialogue. And I thought, well, you know, that's really interesting. I can strip all that stuff out too. And I came up with this basic bean shape. And then, so when I was, uh, did a stint my senior year, in art school as the cartoonist for the university-wide newspaper. I uh, did a weekly strip. Uh, the Beans started out, and it was a political strip. It was mostly about Nixon, who, you know, which was a big deal then. <laughs> right. and, um, and the Beans started as a little aside, kind of at the bottom of the strip, in the way that uh, other characters started at the bottom of various strips. And and uh, and by the end of the year, the beans had taken over the complete comic strip, and that's what they were. They were beans. They didn't live in a world. They just were uh, uh, these little minimalist uh, shapes that basically talked about the real world. Um, the name Bean World was something that I picked up after college when I was working uh, at a printing company, and uh, being the lowest person on the totem pole in the art department, it was my job to set uh, the big headlines on this machine that was very much like a typositor, which you actually had to uh, roll spools around and you had to uh, uh, set each letter one at a time photographically. Right. And, uh, and so I spent all of my time in this little closet underneath the stairs, very Harry Potter-ish, um, uh, you know, hunched over this machine with a red light, and everybody started calling it the Beans World, because my nickname in the workplace was the Bean, um, <laughs> left over from college, because a lot of people that I went to college with ended up in the same company. 
and uh, and so it was the beans world, and um, and then it somehow started getting just called Bean World, and so that was the little sign that was on the door of this little closet. It said Bean World, and uh, and then eventually I started working on uh, drawings where I was working out the the character slowly, and that took about five years. And then in 1980, um, I kind of had all the characters down. The Bean World got named in 1975. So, so uh, in 1980, which was a period of five years, and I had left Connecticut and had moved to Chicago and gone into you know, advertising, and uh, somewhere along the line, it all just kind of came together, and I started writing the very last character that I discovered was Grandma Pa, and that's what tied it all together. And so then I started doing what eventually became the first issue of Bean World. Right. And so how did you actually manage to take that? And uh, the first few issues were sort of self-published, correct? Well, the first two issues were done as eight and a half by 11 black and white Xerox zines. Wow. Um, and because uh, really, basically, the place, the ad agency that I worked, we got this new fangled uh, Xerox machine that could take 11 by 17 paper, uh, which was a big deal in those days. And, uh, and I immediately figured out, well, hey, you know, I can print on both sides. I can fold it in half. I can put a staple in it, and it looks like a little looks like a little zine. And so I published those as uh, eight pagers. Uh, mm -hmm. each, uh, each little eight pager had a splash page and, um, and a to be continued. And so what became the first two issues of Bean World uh, were published that way. Mm -hmm. If you can call it publishing because really what I was doing was I was a vice president of the ad agency at that point. Right. And so, you know, I would basically come in uh, really early in the morning, uh, run off all my copies, mm -hmm. uh, turn the machine off, let it cool down, uh, walk out, go to breakfast, and then come in back in like I had never been there before. Because <laughs> essentially this was theft. Right. And, um, but I was, you know, actually a person that was in charge of making sure that nobody stole anything. So I don't, I don't actually, you know, uh, uh, recommended kids, but, uh, <laughs> but that's what I did. And so they didn't cost me anything. Right. So, uh, so I went around and I did this completely crazy thing, which was, I took, oh, I think it was the first, what became Bean World 1 and maybe the first chapter of Bean World 2, mm -hmm. uh, but again, all those little eight-pagers, put them in a, um, uh, in a manila envelope along with a self-addressed stamped envelope and a little form saying, uh, did you like this? Because if you like it, send back this self-addressed stamped envelope and I'll send you the next chapter for free. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and Kat Ironwood, who was doing, she was at Eclipse, and I gave her one, and she wrote a piece in uh, her column, Fit to Print, in CBG, The Buyer's Guide. And all of a sudden, I was getting like dozens of people writing in saying, please send me a free one. And so I did. And I think, um, 
and I started a letters page. Right. <laughs> it really, it really, it, the whole thing just exploded completely out of control. And, uh, and it got up to, I think I was about a hundred people, something uh-huh. like that. And, uh, and then, uh, after about a year of that, uh, I went out to PetuniaCon, which was a convention in Oakland in 84. Uh, it was a Cerebus convention. And it was there that Cat and Dean of Eclipse said, um, hey, if you want to self-publish this, but uh, have us print it and distribute it, um, we'll do that. And we shook hands, and that was our deal for 21 Issues. Wow. Uh, they, uh, at first they were doing it free and then at the very end, uh, uh, we, uh, I just couldn't do it for free anymore. It was driving me crazy. It was like, uh, uh you know, I got to pay you something. So that was it. We, I did my own book. Mm-hmm. I provided my own negatives. Um, uh, did my own letters pages, you know, but they solicited it. They printed it. They distributed it and they collected the money and they took and then in turn for that they took a fee and that is the foundation of the Image Central deal. That's oh, cool. where it kind of got invented. Right, right. And anyway, creator-owned property. Creator-owned, but creator finance. Sure, sure. Well, speaking of but image, I'm getting ahead of the story. No, yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> um, but speaking of of image. Uh, Bean World ran for 21 issues until about you know right. 93, and then you sort of put Bean World on hiatus, where you, and you actually took on the position of executive director uh, for Image Comics. Yeah, I didn't intend for that to happen. Um, I put out Bean World about three times a year for a mm-hmm. long time, and then I took uh, then I took a job as the marketing director of Moondog's Comic Land, which was a chain of comic book stores in uh, the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. And in, I was there for three years, I think, and in that period of time, I only put out two comics. I got really, really busy. Right. And, uh, but then I put out two issues. I guess I put out two issues within six months of each other. And I was definitely uh, hitting my stride again and was well into uh, Bean World, what would have been Bean World 22. I believe that uh, it was solicited. Uh, there was a cover. It was called Why Me? Um, and I went to Image, and at the exact same moment, Eclipse went into bankruptcy. Uh-huh. And so it was easy. I was still working on it very slowly, but I didn't have a publisher. And, uh, and I just kind of kept moving forward and 15 years went by really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the only thing I published in that period of time was the, uh, story that did for Rob Liefeld in, uh, Asylum. Okay. Um, now how did the, the, the role of executive director of image come about? I mean, how did they approach you or how did the conversation start? Well, a couple things. Um, Jim Valentino and I, uh, were friends, uh, since the 
you know, the early 80s indie stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after I went pro, 84, 85, um, I knew Mark Silvestri because he was still uh, in Chicago um, working for First and Marvel. Mm-hmm. And so I knew those guys. Um, didn't really know Rob, but Rob and Jim were staring, sharing a studio. And so I knew a lot about kind of what was going on. Um, but those are the guys that I knew. Um, the Once they formed an announced image, uh, Gary Colabono, who owns owned Moondogs, mm-hmm. uh, uh, got an offer from the people that owned the Chicago Comic-Con, uh, the three people that were partners, saying, hey, if you can get us some really big guests, uh, we'll make you a partner. So Gary came back and said, we're getting Image. And I said, okay. And um, it had to be done formally from Chicago Comic-Con to actually to Malibu, because Malibu was Image's publisher then. Right, right. Um, but I wrote the proposal and, uh, there's no question about it. I mean, you know, the proposal was from a creator to a group of creators and they went for it. And so next thing you know, oh God, we've got image comics as the guest of honor. Uh, they didn't, didn't even have a comic that had come out yet. Right. And, um, and so that led to, uh, the image tent which is, you know, kind of gained a mythic reputation of, you know, Image Comics was so big that it was in, it was the last year at the old Chicago Comic-Con Hotel in Rosemont, and we couldn't fit the crowd, so we put out a big tent in the parking lot. And we really, we just turned out everything we possibly had uh, in order to make uh, Image and the fans uh, feel excited and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Comfortable was a big thing, you know, air conditioning the tent and, you know, all of that. And so, um, and for reasons that perplex me to this day, uh, Marvel mm-hmm. uh, decided to cancel in protest Spider-Man's 30th birthday celebration. Ah. And DC decided not to come to the convention and they set up shop uh, in a hotel across the street where they're seeing portfolios and stuff like that. So here's Image Comics mm-hmm. in this complete vacuum <laughs> with no counter-programming coming from Marvel and DC. Right. It was a terrible technical error. And, um, and Image Comics was just the greatest thing that ever hit the planet coming out of that convention. And that momentum carried into San Diego. And, uh, and so there you go. Um, now that was in the summer of 92, uh, in the, in the winter, early winter of 93, image comics decided to, the, the boys decided to actually incorporate. Mm-hmm. And because before that they had just been this coalition that was doing business at Malibu and they decided to incorporate and leave Malibu and do it themselves. And so they did. Um, and Tony Libido, uh was made publisher, but 
Tony's Tony's a really smart guy and um, and a natural uh, marketer, but he didn't really know anything about publishing, and he was learning everything on the fly. Mm-hmm. And uh, they put together this office in Fullerton, and I think that was in February, and it it really became apparent to the Image partners in September, October, that they needed some more kind of central and experienced leadership. And uh, and the first I heard about that was at the Philadelphia convention that year where they, that was the convention with Todd McFarlane and Peter David had their famous debate. Right. And, um, uh, and I, I, I heard from a couple of the image guys, you know, eh, you know, we're having some issues in the office and we're probably going to be looking for somebody. And I, so they did. They had this huge industry-wide search, the details of which I have absolutely no memory of who they interviewed or anything else. But in October, um, end of October, they asked me to come out and talk to them, which I did. Right. And, uh, and it was all kind of uh, poetic because uh, – it was during the uh, Laguna Beach fires, hmm. and you could actually see from the image office, look out the windows, you could see the entire landscape uh, on the horizon on fire. Wow. And, uh, and we talked, and we talked, and we talked, and uh, I didn't really know what I was doing there, uh, <laughs> but I'd been summoned by Image Comics, right? So, um, so we talked, and we talked about the industry, and... Uh, two things I remember. One, which Todd asked me, what are you doing here, Larry? And um, and I gave a speech. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what I remember anyway. I gave a speech that you know about creators' rights, starting with Siegel and Schuster, going right. through Will Eisner, mm-hmm. uh, into Eastman and Laird and the Ninja Turtles, and really basically saying that you know the entire, uh, I guess in those days, 50-year history of creator rights uh, has now culminated in Image Comics. Mm-hmm. And if you guys screw this up, <laughs> there it will set back creator rights and creator-owned comics for a generation. Right. And so, therefore, I'm out here to protect me as much as you. Mm-hmm. They like that answer. Yeah, no, that's a great uh, answer. Uh, the other answer that was Jim Lee, he asked me, uh, well, Larry, when, if you were to come out here and run Image Comics, what's the first thing that you would do? And I remember my answer was order lunch. <laughs> because <laughs> I had no idea what I would do. Right. And um, so anyway, they, they, uh, they asked me to come out uh, to California. I said I would come out for three weeks, mm-hmm. um, take a look at the office, try to figure out how it all works, um, go home, write a report, and come up with a short list mm-hmm. of people that I thought might be good for them. Uh, I flew out. I walked in the door. I was presented to uh, the eight or ten people, whatever it was in the office in those days, as their new boss. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, was handed two stacks of files, uh, both of which were at least a foot tall, um, uh, all kinds of entanglements that, that they were in, uh, 
and I just started working there. <laughs> and I went home, and I kept working. And uh, and th- then they basically said, um, we don't want a short list. We just want you to do this. Mm-hmm. And I said, but I live in Chicago, and I don't want to leave Chicago. I love Chicago. I don't want to come to California. Mm-hmm. And I said, they said, but we want you. And I said, so if you will uh, let me uh, go back and forth, I will work for you. Um, and let my personal life catch up with me, uh, then I'll come and do it. And they said yes. And so that's what I did for two and a half years before to get my wife to move out to California. Right. Uh, I would spend three weeks in the office in California and one week back in Chicago. And it's just the beginning of cell phones <laughs> and, uh, and things like that. So mm-hmm. I was actually able to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did that. And then... Uh, and then Corey moved out to uh, California, and uh, <laughs> and then I think she moved out in '96, and then in so she was out here for three years, and then in '99 I started doing the same thing again in McFarland. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but that's a I'm getting ahead of myself. Again. <laughs> but yeah, that was it. I mean, you know, I just um, uh, they wanted. Well, first of all, when I walked into Image, everybody called uh, those guys the owners. We got to call the owners. We got to do this with the owners. They would send out these emails that said to the owners of Image. Right. And I said, Whoa, whoa, whoa! They don't own us. Mm-hmm. We're employees. They're partners. We're going to call them the Image partners. Right. And because um, it just seemed more professional, and that's obviously what stuck. Sure. Um, Kelly Van Landingham, who ended up being. Uh, my right-hand person, as far as administrative stuff goes, mm-hmm. came up with the name Image Central, mm-hmm. and because um, again we needed to call ourselves something. Um, but uh, I'll tell you that was a fun job. <laughs> well, you were there for six years, um, yeah. but but I, I I wanted to talk. I don't know what it was like at that specific time. I know uh, now, especially uh, Image is sort of branched out beyond a lot of uh, partner slash creator owned material. Um, but what was the submission process like at image? Like when a new title idea came about, was there an approval process? Was it something that had to go through a committee? Was it something that you just said, yeah. yes, check or anything coming from a partner and anything, you know, was a okay, but anything coming from a not partner would have to be voted on. How did, how did that work? Well, all of those things over the six years, mm-hmm. um, partners, uh, could publish uh, any title they wanted, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, within, you know, under the uh, the lo- their own logo. Mm-hmm. Um, because there were so many books that ended up being ridiculously late, mm-hmm. I do believe that we had an internal policy, which was that before any partner could uh, solicit for a book. I want to say this is like 94. This Mm -hmm. is a little bit after I got there. Um, Before they could solicit for any book, there had to be three issues, at least penciled in the can. And they had to be shown to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, but that was just, uh, and that actually worked. 
Um, but it was, it put a lot of pressure personally on me because every partner knew that I had uh, books uh, from other studios and they all wanted to see them. Mm-hmm. And part of the rules was that they couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, that kind of worked. And uh, as far as um, books coming from the outside, mm-hmm. Uh, they were presented uh, to me or to a partner who in turn presented it to me. Mm-hmm. And then it had to be voted on by the partners. I see. Uh, I don't remember if it had to be unanimous. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that if a partner was really objected to uh, something that they did have the ability to uh, not veto it, but kind of talk everybody to death um, <laughs> because that's the way we did everything. Right. Um, you filibustered <laughs> comics out of existence. Yeah, yeah, we just we just talk and we talk and we talk. And if we couldn't come to an agreement, we would table it. Right. And um, which meant that things moved slowly, but they were pretty unanimous. And um, now later um, when we lost Jim Lee and Rob. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember, Extreme and Wildstorm made up the bulk of the titles that we published month to month. Mm-hmm. Um, then Image Central became more key. And probably my last two, three years there, uh, I had the ability to uh, find people, bring them in, and uh, greenlight them. Uh, Pretty sure that's how that worked at the end there. Right. Um, and I, I published, you know, and uh, Extreme and Wildstorm leaving left a huge financial hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely published a lot of books that uh, people are like, "What are you doing?" And um, and after I left, Jim uh, Jim Valentino. Uh, I don't like a lot of these books, so let's let's not continue to publish those. And then he found out, oh yeah, you got to fill a hole, right? And um, and so, you know, he then he crafted the company the way that he wanted it to be. And then Eric Larson did that, and mm-hmm. and we've got Eric Stevenson. Now Eric Stevenson is essentially uh, running a publishing company that he is the publisher of, right? Uh, and that's a that was a big deal to me. I mean, I didn't want to be publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel like a publisher. Right. Um, I felt like I used to say that my job was like being the coach on an all-star basketball team where the players were also the owners. All right. And so uh, everybody was everybody wanted the ball every play, mm-hmm. and everybody was my boss. Right. And so uh, it was a lot like herding cats. Yeah. <laughs> and um and I used to say that, you know, I was fine at any given moment as long as uh no more than three out of the six partners were off the reservation. But if it was four, then things started, you know, becoming difficult. Right. And um but generally uh they agreed on most things and uh or at least they would eventually. Mm-hmm. But uh 
Now, what was the editorial process like at Image being executive director? Did they kind of like did the individual studios, because each of them seemed to have their own individual studio, did they kind of just supervise themselves and turn in completed, you know, work? It depended. Um, uh, everything that came from Extreme, Wildstorm, and eventually Top Cow um, was 100% self-contained. Mm-hmm. Um, the art department at Image Central in my day um, was still doing the production work on the McFarlane books, the Larson books, and the uh, Shadowline books. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time I got to McFarlane, McFarlane was doing its own finishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wildstone was gone, uh, Extreme was gone, and uh, and so uh, and one of the things that Image Central offered to people when they brought their books in was uh, production. So uh, Image Central would, uh, you know, help assemble their covers, you know, their letter pages, you know, right. things like that. Okay. Um, now, but as far as, but, well, hold on. as, okay. far as uh, content goes, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was 100%, 100% uh, in the hands of the actual individual studios and the people that they lined themselves with. So, um, so there was no sort of editorial kind of support or editorial. No, they had their okay. own editors. All they right. had their own. Uh, uh, that's what I'm saying. I didn't feel like a publisher. I felt yeah, like yeah. an executive director. And um, but when it came into uh, uh, the stuff that came through Image Central, mm-hmm. that's when it you know all of a sudden. Well, I never, I you know, being a self publisher. Uh, and a writer artist myself, mm-hmm. I never really wanted to tell or get involved in any writer artist um, decisions because I felt that those were those things were their own. Sure. And I and, and, and I, I mean I, I believe that all the way across the board, including into advertising. I remember uh, once uh, for the Max, Sam Keith um, didn't want to do the solicitation. At all, no words, nothing. Just wanted a little tiny postage stamp picture, uh, uh, floating in white, on the page in the catalog. Why did everybody want? And everybody wanted because that's what he wanted. And everybody went completely insane. He said he can't do that. So of course he can do that. It's his book. It's his funeral. Did Did he have a reason for wanting that? Yeah, he didn't want to. He was tired of it. He was tired of, I think he was just tired of doing solicitations or whatever. So he <laughs> wanted to do it that way. And of course, it got a lot of attention. Sure. And he was right. And, um, uh, uh, but again, I wasn't going, you know, to me, it was like, dude, you own this book. It's your IP. Um, if this is what you want to do, go ahead and do it. I'm behind you 100%. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, because that's what I felt like. I felt like that I was just somebody that was helping coordinate uh, people's individual efforts. Right. Um, at the end of my tenure, mm-hmm. I was starting, you know, because so much of my job had been playing traffic cop and um, diplomat between right. the studios. Uh, when all of a sudden there was nothing left of four studios and they all got along, my job got a little boring, and and um, uh, and I was 
doing more and more just talking to individual creators in Image Central about why does my book not sell and all this kind of stuff. And I can remember uh, one day uh, after talking to somebody that publishes, publishing those days through Image Central, who is a very, very important and famous writer today, mm-hmm. um, uh, thinking, why am I why am I holding the hand of this neurotic writer artist when that's what I am? <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, and that was when I kind of knew it was time to move on. And right. I told Todd that I was thinking about it, and then he offered me a job at, at uh, McFarland Toys, and so I just made the transition. Right. Okay. Well, that's cool. Um, wait, and you actually spent eight years as president of McFarland Toys, but then in 2007... I was there eight years. I think I was president of McFarland Toys for six, and I was president of uh, McFarland Productions for two. I, I don't know. All, all the McFarland companies are I mean, they're separate and distinct, but uh, uh, in those days, it was more like a royal court, right. in which Todd just kind of uh, ran things the way that he wanted to. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the toy company actually had a president that, and it had a, it, the division itself was up in Detroit, and um, uh, but after we made the decision that we didn't want to have it in Detroit anymore, and uh, and shut that all down, I don't know. Eventually, I ended up as president of Final Toys. Right. Um, but you left there in 2007, uh, and yeah. and then you revived Tales of the Bean World. Um, and I know you, you, you're now with Dark Horse, publishing through Dark Horse, yeah. uh, and, you know, obviously new material, uh, as well as reprints of the original series. Um, what was the impetus going back to the comic book world and why take Bean World to Dark Horse when you have a relationship with Image? You know, yeah. what, uh, what was the okay. thought process? There? So, um, I started getting keenly interested in Bean World, uh, about a year and a half before we parted ways. And um, and I don't know. I mean, there were a lot of things that were going on. The toy business was getting harder. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of uh, stuff going on with manufacturing in China that I didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the pressure that was being put on uh, the toy company, as far as uh, maintaining margins and pricings with big dogs like Walmart and Toys R Us, uh, was just not fun. Mm-hmm. And um, and really, Todd needed uh, he just needed some fresh eyes and a fresh brain and 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 all of that. So I just didn't like the toy business anymore. Right. And um, and so okay. So, all right, I'd wanted to go back to Bean World anyway. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a couple of things had actually happened, one of which was uh, I started working digitally, and I recognized working digitally that, uh, that I could do things that I couldn't do anymore because they didn't make those art supplies anymore. <laughs> okay. And, um, and so, like the technical pens that I used, uh-huh. um, you couldn't get them anymore. And the Zipatone, Lettertone that I used, you couldn't get it anymore. Right. And now, 
you can get a lot of that stuff today because it comes from Japan. But um, but at that point in time, you couldn't do it. So I started working on a Cintiq, and I realized that everything that I had been depressed about not being able to do, I could now do. And uh, and so it was time to take these uh, hundreds of pages of Bean World notes that I had and turn them into something because, quite frankly, I wasn't getting any younger. Right. And um, so – Okay, I'm going to do this, and uh, and I let people know that I was going to do it, and uh, and I had offers from uh, many publishing companies, mm-hmm. uh, Image included, and I just I don't know I just uh, uh, maybe I was too close to them I'd worked there too long I knew too much I knew way too much about how all the contracts were for Diamond and all that kind of stuff right and I just felt like that uh, I just I wanted a fresh start. And, and more than anything uh, at Dark Horse, what I really wanted was to work with Diana Schutz. Mm, okay. And uh, because I actually was ready to have uh, some kind of uh, editor to, to bounce things off of. The right. reason why I liked Dark Horse was they, were, they completely leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and yet, when I want uh, advice and help, uh, Diana is just the perfect person for me. And so I'm incredibly happy there. Right. Um, now you talked about them kind of sort of leaving you alone creatively, kind of do what you're going to do, but yet offering support if you ask for it, you know, in terms of, you know, you know, uh, having an editor and things like that. What's the publishing process there in terms of how is it does it differ from image in terms of like as a creator as a creator owned uh property and as a you know a writer artist how does it differ between the two different companies um well first of all i can't really speak about dark horse as a whole sure because I, I don't know right and um but i know that uh that i work uh-huh. i've been told by you know that i work the same way as um Stan Sakai, which is, you know, basically come up with your stuff, turn it in. Uh, if if you want somebody to read a draft, great. If you don't feel like somebody reading a draft, great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the comments and the the, uh, the correction suggestions come in, and you know, and then they do uh, uh, the production. Um, so my relationship with Diana. And Dark Horse is the same thing as uh, Sergio Aragonis and Jeff Smith were when they were at Image. Mm-hmm. Um, they just turned their books in. Um, so that's all I can really speak about. I don't know what it's like at Dark Horse to work for other editors or, you know. No, I, I know, right. for example, like Matt Wagner uh, works very closely with Diana, you know, mm-hmm. in the creative process, I think. I think Frank Miller does too, but I don't, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And um, but again, it's uh, there's a it's your I mean it's very because it gets said to me you know from time to time it's your book, right? Um, it's your choice. Um, we're here to help, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's what they do. They certainly don't interfere. Sure. And, um, and that's all I was really looking for was uh, you know a grown up to work with. Right. <laughs> right. No, that's actually, that's great. I mean, that's good to know. Um, Cause you know, you don't know what goes on as the, 
you know, a comic book reader, uh, you don't necessarily know what goes on behind the scenes in terms of the editorial publishing process. So it's good to even hear your perspective from it. I think it's, it's yeah. It's well, Diane and I go way back. I mean, sure. she was one of the people that you know wrote in looking for the you know. I mean, well, actually, I think I sent them to her, but uh, but she goes all the way back to the free uh, little eight page zines. I mean, right. all the way back to the beginning. To the old Bean World ash cans. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and okay, and then lastly, Bean World started as a sort of serial, a periodical, you know, comic book. I, I don't want to hesitate yeah. to say monthly because it wasn't actually monthly, but well, you know what I mean. Periodical. Sure. <laughs> um, but now Bean World is, you know, they're graphic novels. They come out original yeah. material. It's not, you know, most comic books are, you know, printed as a periodical and then, you know, packaged if they're successful as a graphic novel. But Bean yeah. World is now basically the, a longer form story you know, self-contained, but graphic novels. Yeah. Uh, why did you make that switch? What was the creative impetus behind that? Well, I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> I just, I, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to do periodicals again. Sure. Um, but I don't, but I can't really articulate why. Okay. And, um, but I knew that I knew that what turned out to be remember here when you were there I knew that that had to be a long form uh-huh. uh, uh, graphic novel and um, and so and then when I just didn't necessarily want to I just wanted to try it really I think and um, because one of the things that I didn't like about periodicals mm-hmm. was uh, particularly the way that I work, uh, which is I have some idea of where I'm going, but I really like to improvise a lot of it as I'm going along. Right. Um, that if you actually put out books and make choices, mm-hmm. a year later you may go, why did I do that? And you're kind of <laughs> stuck with it. And that really happened to me a couple times in, in, in the periodical comic book. Right. And, 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 and I can say this. Um, when I did hear there, uh, as I was getting into the last 50 pages, uh, I realized that there were things in the first 50 pages that, uh, weren't necessarily supporting the story by being there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I took them out and, um, if I'd done it as a periodical, I couldn't have done that. I would have been stuck with that stuff. And then people would have said, well, what about that stuff? And, right. and, uh, and no, I didn't want to talk about that stuff now. That stuff comes later. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was it for me. That's, that's when I realized that, oh, I like working like this. I like being able to have a nice big story where I meander and I don't have to worry about people picking up individual issues and, and wondering what's going on. Um, I actually was in a conversation last night on on Twitter with people uh, uh, about this because, uh, you know, I come from a generation of cartoonists that believes in the uh, wisdom that that every individual issue of yours that somebody buys is the first time somebody is reading it for the first time. Sure. And... uh, and my point was, yeah, I bet Kurt Swan got really, really tired of growing, of, of drawing uh, uh, 
Krypton blowing up with Kal-El's rocket zooming out right. you know, every five issues or three issues or whatever it was. But it right. really, uh, there was a rhythm to it, and it constantly uh, told the new reader, uh, gave the new reader a way to get you know involved with the material and understand what's going on. Right. Um, now, when my Bean World stuff was all collected, there's this incredible rhythm uh, within the first two hardcovers Mm -hmm. where, you know, every 40 pages or whatever, you see the beans, you know, going on a chow raid and jumping over the legendary edge and all that kind of stuff. And and there's a pleasantness to it. And none of that is in, uh, uh, you know, the newer books because I only explain that stuff once within uh, uh, the covers. But it gives me. But on the other hand, I can do a chow raid that lasts twenty pages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which would be an entire issue right. of a comic. And so it's a trade-off. And um, uh, which is not to say that I would never go back to uh, you know periodicals ever again. Right. I'd never say never. And uh, you know if that's the way the industry you know change and then those kind of things become um, you know. A necessity because you know I don't know you know mm-hmm. five years from now there's no paper left everything's you know singles <laughs> on digital or whatever you know got to work the way you got to work right it's a business right um, and uh, but I like I like what I'm doing now I like what I'm doing uh, this way a lot mm-hmm. because I get to meander right well sometimes your best ideas come when you're meandering often yeah. <laughs> Um, now you've, uh, obviously been in the, the industry a long time. You go to shows, you're out there. Uh, I've seen you in support of the com- comic book legal defense fund. I mean, so, you know, everybody, yeah. um, what is the market out there for aspiring independent comic creators? I mean, nowadays you have places like dark horse, places like image, whereas 20 years ago, you kind of, you know, you had a few places. But, it, you know, they were very back of the shelf, uh, you know, black and white books. Now it seems like there, there's a great, when I say 20, maybe 30 years ago. But, you know, now it seems like there's yeah. more opportunities if you have a great idea for a comic. Uh, what's the marketplace like out there for, you know, young aspiring comic creators? Well, first thing, let me just say, um, I don't think I actually know everybody anymore. <laughs> but I know people within my network of friends sure. who know everybody. Right. I, I, I used to know everybody, but I can't say that I do anymore because there, there's so many people and, uh, and I was kind of, you know, not around for a long time. Um, I think that there, because of the internet, sure. um, everybody has the opportunity to blow their horn as loud and as brightly as they possibly want and have the opportunity uh, to be seen. Um, of course, you become part of a, the general white noise doing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but in the old days, really, you know, if you were really good, you might not be able to get out of the mini comics right. phase of things. And that tended to be rather regional, uh, except for, uh, well, just regional because people were doing it through the mail and trading right. and all of that sort of thing. I, I, I think that this is the true golden age of comics. I mean, I really do. 
there's more material uh, in more genres uh, about more topics by more artists than there have ever been before. Uh, so the ability to have your voice heard is the potential for that is enormous. Um, making money off of it is something else right altogether and you know and that's kind of uh, the struggle that everybody's dealing with in so many ways it's very hard to monetize the internet um, do you work on paper do you not work on paper right um, those are individual choices that each person uh, has to make but I think we're also moving vigorously into a convention economy that has its own gravity and its own momentum. Right. And so uh, you can set yourself up at a local convention. And if you're clever and your product is something that's accessible mm -hmm. and you're a bit of a decent salesperson, um, you can uh, you can get out there and you can make yourself known uh, incredibly quickly. I, I, I remember at Stumptown three years ago, mm -hmm. it's only three years ago, uh, Barry Deutsch um, uh, set up this <laughs> this rather large uh, display for Hereville, mm -hmm. and uh, which at that point was just a uh, and maybe it was a webcomic, but you know, he just printed, uh, uh, you know, a print-on-demand, shorter version, very short version of Hereville, and every single person that walked by, he would say in a you know very loud voice, "How would you like to read the best story about uh, an 11-year-old girl uh, uh, fighting a dragon today, or something like that?" Right. And it was engaging. And he was a good salesperson, and my God, I mean, you know, I mean, he was, that book was, you know, uh, uh, published and, you know, a bestseller or whatever, you know, within mm -hmm. 18 months, whatever, a year, two years. Right. Um, it can be done. It can definitely be done. Um, the, I think the main thing that, that anybody that's young has to do is be sure that you've actually found your own voice. Right. Um, and just stick with it. Just don't give up. And uh, and chances are you'll at least make one connection that will lead to another connection that will lead to another connection, and so on and so on. Um, in my case, it was being – I did these little eight-pagers. I put them in an envelope, you know, with a self-addressed stamped envelope. Um, and I gave one to Cat Ironwood, uh, and I didn't even know that she had a column. She was just somebody that I really liked because she was an, just started as an editor at Clips, and, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I used to like her letters. She was a letter hack mm -hmm. in the 70s, and so um, I thought she might enjoy it, and that was the connection. That was the connection that opened so many doors for me. And um, uh, if I hadn't done that, I don't know what would have happened, but uh, – you gotta, you gotta try, and, and and that's the thing. But as far as I don't know, I mean, 
it's not any harder or easier, I don't think, today than it ever was uh, to get yourself, find yourself somebody that will publish you or that will help promote you because you might just have a webcomic today. Right. And uh, so uh, it's not that somebody's going to necessarily publish you, but you're going to, a blogger or a podcaster or whatever will take notice of you and uh, champion you. And, you know, you're kind of off to the races. Um, But again, like I said earlier, there's so many people talking about so many things at once that uh, you just got to hope that uh, you'll catch somebody on a good day and and you get their attention. Right. Cool. Um, That's, uh, I think, good insight. Uh, good information, uh, advice. Um, and lastly, what we like to do uh, at the end of every podcast is a rapid fire series of either ors. Um, sure. And uh, so Mac or PC? Oh, Mac, but I actually draw on a PC. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, Pinto or Lima? Uh, Lima. Sean Bean, the actor, or Billy Bean? the GM of the A's. Billy Bean. Uh, better movie, Mr. Bean or the Malagro Beanfield War? Oh, not even close. Malagro Beanfield War. Nice, nice. Um, <laughs> I was hoping you'd go there. Um, Tales of the Bean World would be better as a, a 3D CGI feature film or an animated claymation television series? Claymation. Gotta love claymation. Yeah. Um, and lastly, better voice for Mr. Spook, George Clooney or Alec Baldwin? Alec Baldwin. <laughs> cool. Not even close. Actually, <laughs> Jimmy Durante. But no, uh, uh, Alec Baldwin, yeah. Cool, cool. I, I probably would have gone that way too. Um, and that's all the time we have for now. Uh, thanks for speaking with us today, Larry. Um, we really appreciate your time. Um, be my sure, pleasure. Be sure to visit larrymartyr.blogspot.com. And, and honestly, if you like eclectic non-superhero comics, uh, to any of the listeners, you should check out Tales of the Bean World, published by Dark Horse now. Uh, it's a fun and interesting and completely unique comic, uh, I promise. So definitely check that out. Uh, and for more information on our show, including a Q&A print interview with Larry, uh, please visit our website at scriptsandscribes.com. And if you have any questions about the craft or business of comic book creating, writing, anything like that, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet at scriptsscribes. There's no and in the middle of it. Uh, thanks for listening. 